1 Kings chapter 1, verse 1. <clears throat> Doesn't it feel good in here, huh? Now, King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore, his servant said to him, Let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms, that my lord the king may be warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout the territory of Israel, and found Abishag the Shumanite, and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but he, the king knew her not. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. Of course, that was, Haggith was one of David's wives. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and fifty men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus or so? He was uh, also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zuriah, and with Abathar, Abiathar, the priest, and they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok, the priest, and Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan, the prophet, and Shimei and Re, and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. And Adonijah sacrificed sheep and oxen and fatted cattle by the Serpent stone, which is beside in Rogel, and he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah, but he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaniah, or the mighty men, or Solomon his brother. And then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the, well that's okay, so anyway, Nathan uh, the prophet learns of this, so he tells Bathsheba, and Bathsheba relates all this to David, so that kind of gets us down to verse 28. Then King David answered, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord and the God of Israel, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne and in my place, even so I will do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed her face to the ground and paid homage to the king. And said, may my Lord the King live forever. And, uh, well, let's stop there. You may be seated. Uh, just for time's sake, uh, can't read the whole thing. And, and I kind of hope you, you know, do our reading this at home, these passages, uh, because we're not able to read all these, but they're very interesting. And, and again, you might read things that have questions that I don't cover. So it's, it's always good to do that anyway. Part of preparation, I guess. Get this thing clicking. There we go. Uh, last week, as we finished up Second Samuel, we uh, of course it was a great introduction into the resurrection message, right? As it dealt so great with, uh, so well with uh, the atonement. We saw David sin and numbering the people. It just set up this whole scenario that illustrates the plight of human history. Uh, Israel uh, was a people condemned to death by God, but in mercy he sends a substitute uh, so that the penalty could be lifted, right? And, and that's what David uh, uh, found out as the death angel approaches Jerusalem and stops, and David and the Lord tells David to build, uh, to make an altar uh, on uh, Arona's uh, threshing floor and uh, make a sacrifice, and the the uh, death angel will stop. And so, then we finish then, 
But to me, one of the most interesting uh, themes in Scripture, we saw that Mount Moriah where Isaac was uh, sacrificed or was going to be sacrificed by his father. The threshing floor of Aruna and Solomon's temple were all on the same spot. So, so if there's ever a neon light in Scripture to show how sin was going to be forgiven, and of course that the, the atonement actually took place just a few a hundred yards away from there on, uh, on, on Mount Calvary on Golgotha. So, but here are three, three times in the Old Testament, uh, the work of atonement is, uh, done for us and shown, set forth for us in the very spot there in where Jerusalem, uh, Solomon's temple was built. So to me, this is very interesting. And I think this is one of the things that shows uh, why we understand this to be God's word. These are not things that just would have happened. Uh, just by accident, right? And so that brings us to First Kings and the final days of David. Um, of course, uh, First and Second Kings originally are just one book uh, that give the history of the kingdom from Solomon uh, to uh, the Babylonian captivity, and then First and Second Chronicles kind of rehash really the Old Testament up until uh, that point. Uh, and so, though, just like uh, any of the books that we uh, have been studying, uh, you're talking about 400 years of history, uh, roughly 50,000 words. Uh, if you're going to try to dwell on the historical aspects, it would have taken many more words. But this is what's given because what is being set forth is Christ and setting up the need for and, of course, the historically how Christ was going to come. And so the, the, what's recorded for us, just like John told us at the end of his gospel, Jesus did many more things, but this, these are the things that we have written so that you have enough uh, uh, information about Jesus Christ that you can believe that he is the Son of God, right? And that's kind of what we have here with uh, the kings and, and really all the books uh, that are in the Word of God. What God wants us to know is given to us. Well, this whole account of Adonijah trying to become king sounds familiar to some degree as we've gone through First and Second Samuel. Uh, David's family problems continue. Uh, we're not left into the dark as to why that's the case. Uh, we know David's always had a weakness with women, uh, and his sons are just as hot-blooded as he is. And uh, David was not a very good parent. He was not a disciplinarian by any stretch. And uh, the, the Bible, God lets us know specifically that this was Adonijah's problem. And, of course, we could probably uh, uh, say that was Absalom's problem as well. David never is involved in the raising of his sons, it doesn't look like, in any uh, real good way. And so, uh, about his words, you know, just think about him in verse 5 where he says, I would be king. This is who, you know, this is someone who's never been told no. As, and, you know, God tells us why he's like this, why he's lifted up in pride. It's all about him. And he does, he was, and of course he was older than Solomon. He felt he should be king. And, uh, so, uh, as we read, he, uh, tries to usurp, uh, the kingdom by, uh, grabbing a few people that he figured would, uh, turn on David in some way. And, uh, they become, and, 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 and then he kind of coronates himself. He has a big party, a uh, big coronation party, and he invites those people. But, of course, we're, we know that in God's kingdom, 
It's one who is uh, the the one who is great in the kingdom is the one who serves, and, and, and Adonijah is one who serves himself, and he's going to be much different than Solomon, as we'll see here in just a moment. We pointed out before when we think about you know the, the idea of leadership and, and being great in the kingdom, it's important for us to remember uh, that it is service that makes one great in the kingdom, that that, that, that and that serves the people well. What people need is, when they need leadership, they, they need example. They need someone who is leading them to Christ, right? Those are the things that we need. And, you know, if you think about the qualifications in the New Testament with elders and deacons, for instance. It never mentions their looks. It never mentions their personalities, their outward qualifications. It, it stresses and points to their spiritual gifts and their natures and their godliness. Uh, not their giftedness, as someone put it, but not how well they preach, but their faithfulness in preaching. And it's unlike what we're reading here. What we read about Absalom, what we read about Adonijah, is what he looked like. What the, what Brett River, what they looked like. It was all about their looks. And, and, it, and uh, just to show the difference in what we should be looking for. In, uh, in lead, not just in leadership, but in just, uh, you know, as, uh, 1 Samuel starts off, God looks on the inward, but man looks on the outward. And, and, and what we're being told there is to be careful because that will get you into trouble. It's gotten many a man into trouble by marrying someone only because of what they look like, and, uh, that never turns out well. And, you know, I could go on and on with the examples. And so, uh, I, I thought the qualifications of the elders just kind of reinforce that. If you, if you go and you read that, it's, it's about their character. It's not about their abilities. Now, that's not to say that uh, a pastor shouldn't have a certain amount of abilities, right? Be able to stand up and put two words together. Uh, I think a, a, a pastor should uh, be, you know, he, he should be accurate, interesting, uh, engaging, in his messages as best as he can, you know, it's not like, well, as long as I'm up here telling the truth, it doesn't matter how boring I am or, or how I do it, but, uh, it, what, it's the message and, and it's the, the, the godly qualities that we are to be, uh, thinking about. And that's what you see here. I think the Old Testament, this is just the Old Testament way of bringing these things out. Um, and so, here you see Adonijah, who uh, is a man who sees himself, uh, he, he calls himself, he's not God-called, you see. And, and so he's, his uh, attributes are set forth, uh, his physical, outward attributes, but not the ones that are needed to be a good king. There's an interesting, something uh, in 1st John, we don't, or 3rd John, we never get to go there, hardly, so let's just an opportunity to do so. But here you see an example of this. I have written something to the church, but uh, Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, and, and evidently was the uh, elder, the head elder perhaps, but uh, the, the leader of this church, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked, wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want and puts them out of the church. So he's he's a little tyrant. And we perhaps, I know I've been, as many churches as I've been in and, and familiar with, and perhaps you 
could say the same thing. I've seen churches where one man runs the show, and, and it's, it's not unlike that. But that man is not qualified to be a leader because it's all about himself. It's not about Jesus Christ. And, and that's always something that an elder has got to keep before them, and the people must certainly hold him accountable to that. So God save us from Adonijahs who, who will exalt themselves, strut their stuff, but don't care about the church or anybody else. Well, uh, starting, uh, well, before we, uh, get too far, and this really kind of sets up what Adonijah does, perhaps, in the first few verses we have a interesting account of David trying to keep King David, uh, warm in his old age, and so they bring in a young woman to sleep with them, and to take care of him. And, you know, we look at that and we're thinking, well, <laughs> What do we do with that, right? And, uh, and, and there's, there's sometimes in the scriptures, and we've certainly dealt with that in the Old Testament before, where it's not, it's not something, it's not there for us to make commentary on. There, there's a sense in which we don't know what's going on here for sure, and we have, when it comes to purity and uh, merit, marital relations and all this kind of stuff, the New Testament, and certainly a lot of the Old Testament, and the New Testament though, is the clear message to all that, right? So we don't have to, we don't go to first Kings, first few verses here and say, okay, we're going to do a lesson on, uh, sexual purity or marital relationships because that's not what it's about. Even though we look at this and think, oh, is this the way, is, is this right? Well, it's not right for us. We don't have to worry about it, right? Uh, but that's what they did. And the, some, and, and the, the uh, author doesn't seem to be interested in Making a moral judgment on it. He's just, he's just relating the facts to us. Because what it does, uh, is that, uh, perhaps, uh, uh, Adonijah, he, he, we'll find out later, we get to chapter two, that there's something about, uh, this girl that, uh, you know, Adonijah wants her as his wife. And perhaps that's why he decided to, uh, usurp the throne, to get the throne, because then David's wives become his wives and so forth. Uh, as is often the case. So there could be that. But the commentators, you know, make their uh, speculations. Uh, some say that they they did this because they thought, well, if, if it renews his uh, sexuality, that will help him renew his strength, which, of course, that didn't happen. David was too weak to take advantage of that. I don't I don't think that's probably why, but it could be, you know. I think more obviously, uh, some say that this was, well, another something else that people say that I would say is probably not the case. They say that this was purely platonic and David was never meant to touch her. But it specifically says that she he was to hold her in his arms. And uh, so I, I think that's being a little naive. That's, that's trying to dress up things that we're uncomfortable with, right? I'm not sure that's helpful either. I think she was brought to be a concubine, to be a wife in a sense, and that's just what it is. And again, I think chapter 2 will prove that to some degree. But that's just how it is. So again, I've made a lot of comments and really don't have nothing to not make any judgment about it. It's there. It's not anything that we emulate. This is what happened. That's what they did. That's the situation. It sets up the account, and we'll leave it at that. 
But here we see Adonijah, he, I think he sees in verse 5 David, his father's weakness, because in other words, it doesn't do any good. David is so weak and feeble at this point that, that that really accomplishes nothing. And Adonijah sees this as his chance now to steal the kingdom. And, uh, and, and like I say, this, everything about this reminds us of Absalom, who, uh, trying to, uh, to, to usurp God's authority. Uh, and again, the real problem has always been, as we already mentioned, David's parenting. And it would just be remiss of me to not mention the fact that we remind ourselves that parents have a God-given obligation to parent, to train their children, to raise them up. I don't mean it's your obligation to make sure they're fed and clothed. It is. But just as important is training them and nurturing them in the admonition of the Lord, right? To teach them the gospel, to teach them right from wrong, to teach them the word of God. If God saves them, uh, you know, great. But we do it anyway. That's our obligation. And and that's the one thing that David did not do. And, and so I, I'm, my point then is that parents must be careful. It's easy to let things go, to never say no. I know a lot of parents who their it seems like their first goal is to be friends with their children. Well, you're a parent. You're not a friend. It, you know, it's not that we can't have a good relationship, but you're not there to, you know, it, you, some parents feel like they, they, the only way they interact with their kids is to make sure their kids never get upset with them. Well, if your children, especially your young children, never get upset with you, you're not doing something right. Because it is, as the Proverbs makes very clear, our uh, the, 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 the uh, obligation of the parent to drive foolishness, sin, out of a child. And so, it's, and I hopefully I'm preaching to the choir. But um, it's very important for us to understand that because I think we live in a, a day and age in which bad parenting has made itself very apparent. So learn to say no. And I'll, and I'll, I'll give you a little word of prophecy here, right? Yeah. It's just tongue in cheek. But, but I think it, there's a sense in which it's true. If you want to have a strong and close relationship with your child, especially as an adult, Learn to parent now. Learn to say no. Learn to discipline. Do in the Lord biblically, um, and and you'll have a great relationship. You might, you, you know, again, you, they, you might have times where you're going to have to fight them, and, and it's going to be a daily battle, right? But it will pay off by the time they're teenagers. You'll have a great relationship with them. Don't be afraid to be a parent. So David has provided for his family very well, but he has failed miserably as a father. And so instead of dying with a loving family around him, he's continuing, uh, there's continuing alienation, poor decisions, there's fighting, there's not loving. David is paying for his uh, family relationship for the way he has been a parent. And I think to some degree a husband. <clears throat> and I think the Bible make, draws a clear line between bad parenting and unfortunate results. Now when I say that, I understand that a great parent can have children that don't turn out well, and poor parents can have children that do turn out well. And that those are the exceptions that prove the uh, rule. But 
um, if we do obey the Lord, we would expect things to turn out the way uh, the Lord, uh, the Bible tells them, tells us they will. And so I guess we could point out that it was a family of power and wealth, of course. And in such families, uh, jealousy and disloyalty always rears their ugly heads because money corrupts everything, you know, that type of thing. And power. It's not to say that any of those circumstances are sinful. You know, if you have a family that's wealthy, it's not necessarily sinful that they're like that. But it comes at a cost. And so, it just reminder, you know, sometimes it's good not to have that much and to have a good family and not have all the ugliness that sometimes comes with this kind of uh, family, uh, this kind of wealth of power. So, we should be content. Well, in verse 7, we, we find out that some of these people uh, go with uh, uh, Adonijah and kind of turn their back on David. We're not overly surprised. Joab has never really served anyone other than himself. And so he goes with Adonijah. I, I, you know, David, I think Joab sees David as weak. And, and Joab is probably older than David, perhaps. But David here, you know, his body's worn out. He's He dies at 70. You know, so I'm, you know and, and already, so by 69, he's shivering in bed. He's basically an invalid, right? So, you know, he's, he's dying. And Joab sees that. And Joab turns his back on him, it seems like. Um, then you got Abiathar, who's one of the priests, and he turns. Uh, he, of course, was Eli's grandson. And remember that Eli was cursed because of the way he didn't raise his children well. Uh, God says, your family will, will cease to be priests. And so Abiathar perhaps sees this as an opportunity for him to kind of co- get his uh, position more concrete. Uh, and so uh, maybe a way to undo the curse. Because that would make sense why maybe Abiathar would go with um, Adonijah. And uh, then we read about uh, Shimei in verse 8. Those are the ones who went with uh, Adonijah in verse 7. But in verse 8, Zadok the priest, Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, Nathan the prophet, and Shimei, and Re. And that Shimei is probably not the Shimei that we're familiar with that was cursing David as he fled Jerusalem. If you go to chapter 4, you find out that Shimei was one of David's mighty men. That's probably, the, of course, the Shimei that we're talking about here because the other Shimei is always mentioned with his father's name, too. So just kind of don't get confused by that. So anyway, starting in verse 10, Nathan is seen as a, prop, a faithful prophet. He's not afraid to speak up, to warn. Uh, we just see one his love for the kingdom, the love of, of for the Lord, no doubt, transcends all the bickering. He's not uh, going to get involved with those that he knows not right. And, and if it costs him his life, it costs him his life. And I, I think it's just a great model for those who want to serve in the kingdom well, the kingdom of God. He's willing to do the small things. He doesn't just stand around and say, well... God's sovereign, it's all going to turn out the way it's going to turn out, you know, so let's just see what God does. He sees evil people doing evil things, and he uh, steps in and he does what he can to arrest those things. And I think that's just a really good example for us. Um, doing the small things, don't be afraid. Don't, we can't use the sovereignty of God to not do what we can. Remember in Matthew says that Christ will not, 
forget even when we gave a cup of cold water for his namesake. Christ sees that, that that will be rewarded. And so let's not underestimate the small behind the scene acts of love and godliness that are just as important, I think, in the, because God uses those means. You know, you, you don't have to be a pastor to, 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 to serve or be great in the kingdom. You, you could be, uh, just someone who's, who loves the Lord and wants to please Him, and that's the greatest in the kingdom. And perhaps one way to point this out is that God could have struck Adonijah down for his rebellion, but he uses ordinary means to work all this out. He uses intrigue. And by that it means he, he uses David, or excuse me, Nathan sneaking, we could say, you know, to Bathsheba or, you know, going behind the scenes and saying, hey, you know, what's going on over here? And Bathsheba goes and she tells David and they, they do what they can. And it doesn't mean you don't have faith. But you're doing the right thing. You're, you're, you're obeying the Lord. You're, you're being godly, in a sense. And uh, so we, we don't just pray for the success of the gospel. We don't pray for the success of our church. We, we engage in those things. We, we engage with the gospel with the lost. And we engage in the church. Prayer without obedience is, is just presumption. And I think a lot of people, you know, kind of forget about that. They think that, well, I'm praying, I'm praying for this, praying for that. But you're not doing what God has told you to do in that situation. And I think that the, that the Lord's not pleased with that. I remember my first church, there's a man who's, who's been dead for a number of years now, but there's a man in our church who, when he would pray, would, would pray, uh, and, you know, publicly, he would say, Lord, uh, send us the right kind of people. And I always kind of you know, it was kind of bristled me a little bit. I thought, you know, what right kind of people? What you know, I think he meant, you know, people that you know are good, moral people that he would like and and all that. I think, well, you know, that the the effects of the gospel hopefully will make someone a good person, but what we the church is here to reach people that are not good, that are messy. And you know, we pray that God would send in people who need the gospel, right? So I never was very comfortable with sending the right kind of people because, you know, that, that can be taken a lot of ways, right? We need to go out and we need to not look for, for well, someone who looks like they got their life together and say, well, I'm going to invite him to church. You know, see the pe- person who's struggling, the person in sin, the person who's not doing well, who clearly needs Christ. I mean, yeah, you can invite the good person too, morally speaking, but Everybody, but put foot to it. We don't just pray, Lord, uh, we, we pray that we'll, our church will grow. And then we just sit back and say, let's see if the Lord's going to do anything about it, right? No, and you got the opportunity. We want to be a witness. And uh, so I, I think there's something here and just to remind ourselves that uh, none of these people were just sitting back just watching to see what God was going to do in, in that sense. They, they uh, put feet to their prayers. <clears throat> so, Adonijah had a good idea that Solomon, I don't think he had a good idea. I think he knew that David was going to make Solomon the king. That's why Solomon was not invited to his event, right? Um, he coronates himself pretty much. Uh, Bathsheba probably realized that that would mean a death sentence for Solomon and perhaps her as well. And so in verse 28, uh, David, when he hears what's going on, he immediately 
gets Solomon, and, he, and, and unlike Adonijah, who gets on a horse and has the, the 50 guys announcing him and all that, the true king, he puts on a mule, because Solomon, after all, is going to be a type of Christ, and so he sits on a mule, and, he's, and he goes to his coronation uh, in a humble fashion, because he's a king for the Lord, he's a king over God's people, it's not something to be lifted up in pride over. And so David here, as he sets these scenes in motion, he reminds us, this is David's true character. You know, as all the problems that David had, um, you know, he was weak at home, but he loved the Lord with all his heart. And when push comes to shove, he always does the right thing, right? And that's, so here's David being David. The very last days, he's weak. He, he probably just wants to be left alone in a sense to, to, to die. But he's going to do what he's got to do while he has breath in him. And so Solomon was the promised one uh, that was going to build the house of God. And so to foreshadow the Lord, he comes in a mule. And remember, Jesus Christ uh, rode a, a donkey colt uh, when he presented himself as king on Palm Sunday. Remember, the uh, week before the resurrection. And uh, so we see uh, another typology in the Old Testament. But how different than Adonijah, um, the, the, the good leader, is the leader who serves, not the one who, who, uh, who uh, promotes himself. So that's kind of what, what's going on in chapter 1. And again, if you read, kind of read through that, you, you can read some of the uh, little details there. But let's just close today by reminding ourselves how David and Solomon uh, both teach of the Lord Jesus Christ. Both of them, in, in a, I think, in, in a sense, are types of Jesus. But there's, a, I think, a unique way in which David teaches us something about Jesus and Solomon teaches us a different aspect of Jesus. So David uh, was a victorious warrior. He was uh, the one who... Had to, there was an illegitimate king on the throne, as it were, in Saul, and David takes the kingdom. Uh, he defeats the enemies, uh, you know, not just Saul, but he defeats all the other enemies. So that by, by the time so, uh, Solomon takes uh, the throne, all the enemies have been defeated. And so that's interesting in and of itself. Um, turn, if you would, over to First Chronicles, chapter twenty-eight. First Chronicles 28, let's read the first, uh, start verse 2 through 6, verses 2 through 6, First Chronicles chapter 8, 28, excuse me. Then King David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the work of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God, and I made preparations for the building. But God said to me, you may not build a house for my name, for you are a man of war and have shed blood. Yet the Lord God of Israel chose me from all my father's house to be king over Israel forever. For he chose Judah as a leader, and in the house of Judah, my father's house, and among my father's sons, he took pleasure in me to make me king over all Israel. And of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he has chosen Solomon, my son, to sit on the throne of the king of the Lord for, of, over Israel. And he said to me, 
It is Solomon your son who shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. So David gives his charge to Israel. That's why everybody knows that Solomon was the one David had chosen to succeed him, and that it was Yahweh who told David that Solomon was going to be his son. And yet we see here a distinction in that, and you can keep your place here in First Chronicles if you want, uh, that, that David uh, had something to do in the kingdom. He, he, he started the kingdom, but Solomon is going to kind of build the kingdom, right? And that's kind of what we re- read about there too. In First uh, Kings chapter 5, back near our text here, 1 Kings 5, verse 3, it says, You know that David, this is Solomon speaking, You know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. So there we again see Solomon understanding this, that David, his specific task was to secure the kingdom, and to lay up the treasures needed for the temple. But Solomon was the one who was going to build up the kingdom and make it great. Uh, we see here in uh, First Kings chapter, okay, I had that in here. Look at uh, then Colossians 2.14. By counseling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He, that is, of course, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. All right, that's David as king. That's what that's, That could sum up David's reign. He is a picture of Christ defeating the enemies of God on the cross, of establishing the kingdom, I think, in that sense, right? But Solomon, I think, takes over this this type of Jesus Christ in the glory building of the church. After the, the enemies have been defeated, now Solomon is building the temple. And, of course, we know that the church is the temple. We are living stones uh, being built up as a temple for the Lord, First Peter, uh, we saw in First Peter. So that's going on now. So Solomon kind of uh, typifies the glorified Christ, having defeated the enemies, now building it, but building it from uh, glory, building it from the throne of God. And so back in First uh, Chronicles, if you're still still there, look at chapter 22. First Chronicles 22, let's just read verse 5. For David said... Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceeding magnificent of fame and glory throughout all the lands. I will therefore make preparation for it. So David provided materials in great quantity before his death. So um, David is the one who provides provisions for the kingdom. We might say that the cross has provided what is necessary for the establishment of the church. Look, look at verse 8 of the same chapter, First Chronicles 22, starting in verse 8. 
But the word of the Lord came to me saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. So David's job was to shed blood. (laughs) Think about it. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. What did Jesus say last day on the cross? It is finished. And he ascended into heaven and he sat down. Right, he, he's seated. He, he's, he's provided rest for his people. Solomon shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies. For his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son and I will be his father. And I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. So as Jesus is seated upon the throne building the church. So that's what we see uh, so well in Solomon, and then lastly, just look down at verse 18. Is not the Lord your God with you, and has he not given you peace on every side? This, of course, is uh, talking about Solomon. For he has delivered the inhabitants of the land into my hand, and his land is subdued before the Lord and his people. Now, this is David talking to Solomon. Now set your mind and heart to seek the Lord your God. Arise and build a sanctuary. For the Lord God, so that the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the holy vessels of God may be brought into a house built for the name of the Lord. So David charges Solomon, now get up. It's time for you to build the kingdom, to build the house, to set forth the glory of the kingdom in the house of God. And, and so I think that's what we see primarily with Solomon. Then I thought about Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born. To us the Son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So and there we kind of see the combination of David and Solomon, I think, as they represent uh, the, the uh, work of Christ. And so then just uh, some verses at the, at the very end of our text here, First King chapter 1, we notice a few things that I think bring this out too. Verse 39 of First Kings 1 says, there Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then he blew the trumpet and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. So here we have the anointing of uh, the king. This is the first time that a prophet wasn't told by God to go anoint the king. Now everybody knows who's going to be the next king. That The king is the one whom the, the previous king says. So David has said Solomon will be king. So David has... Uh, Zadok anoint him because from this point on the Davidic dynasty has uh, begun and everybody knows who's going to be the next king. Um, and so we just see God's redemptive plan progressing slowly but surely. Uh, verse 49, of course, when uh, Adonijah, they're having this coronation feast and, the, and then someone comes and says, oh, by the way, David has uh, set Solomon on a mule and he's coronating, uh, you know, uh, Solomon 
all the, everybody says looks around at each other and they get up and they they get out of there because they they kind of realize they're handwriting on the wall they've made a big mistake and they leave and so nobody can stand before this king the, the true king that is Solomon once he has been coronated uh, the in, no enemy can stand right and that certainly is a good picture of Jesus Christ and then verse fifty two. And Solomon said, of uh, course, uh, Adonijah knows he's in trouble, so he runs to the uh, temple or to the tabernacle and, and grabs hold of the horns of the altar, which is kind of a, a considered to be a place of safety. It's kind of like what you have today now where people used to be when they would get in trouble with the law, they would sometimes run down to the uh, local Catholic uh, uh, cathedral, what do you call it, Catholic church, Catholic church. And they would kind of go there, and it would be like a place of sanctuary. Well, that's kind of what they, how they would use, maybe it came from here, right? That's what they would do. And so he was basically asking Solomon to spare his life. And Solomon says, okay, I will, as long as you show yourself to be worthy of sparing your life. Because he's done something that he should be put to death. Solomon says, I'll have mercy as long as you behave yourself, basically. And uh, we'll find out in the next chapter that that didn't turn out too well for Adonijah. But he, you know, it was his own fault. But what we see there is that Solomon rules with righteousness. And uh, and if, basically, he says, if you submit to my reign and behave yourself, all will be well. If you don't, uh, it's going to be bad for you. And Adonijah, I think, really makes a claim for the throne. After uh, some time has passed, and Solomon will have him killed. And we'll see that, of course, in chapter 2. All right, so there, we got done a little bit early. Um, but any questions? Uh, there's a lot in there, but I, I just thank your Heavenly Father for your love to us this day. And Lord, we pray that your blessings will be upon us as we open up the Word of God. May it uh, edify us. May we rejoice in it. May we find strength. May we find the peace in the truths that we study. May Lord, the uh, fact that Jesus Christ uh, sits upon the throne be a comfort to us. May it remind us that someday all will stand before you and uh, we'll give an account. Lord, uh, if we're not clothed in the righteousness of Christ, that will be a, a bad day indeed. So we just pray that each one here knows you as our Lord and Savior and that you would just give be glorified in all that we do this day. In Jesus' name.